Okay, if that's everything, we'll just prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, a rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to assemble ourselves together yet again. It's because of your faithfulness in providing everything that we need that we can grow in grace, and we're so thankful for it. There's so much application that needs to be made these days, and the time is short, so we pray that you will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I ordered a book this past week that these days when you order from Logos, most of what you get doesn't come through the mail as a book. You download it. It's digital. So you can get it right away. It was called Celebrating Liberty. It was by David Barton, and it was speeches and sermons around the time of the First War of Independence. 1776, in that era. In those days, pastors actually published their sermons. They had them all written down. They'd have a page, and they would even uh, publish them in the paper. So there's a lot of material to look through. But what interested me, I was reading the introduction to this, and um, have you all heard of David Barton before? Yeah, he, he is a prolific writer, and he's a walking dictionary. When it comes to uh, history, American history, uh, you, he could just sit and he could talk to you can't listen anymore. Never look at a book and give you dates, specifics, and everything about our history. Anyway, so I got this, this uh, book, and in the introduction, he is preparing the reader for what had to be done for the readers of today to understand what was written uh, 234 years ago. And so in the introduction, he says this. In past generations, the average citizen's knowledge of classical literature, world history, and American uh, political intrigues was both broad and deep. For example, citizens knew why Americans revered the names of Camden and Catham. They could list the Gaelic heroes that fell in defense of America. They understood how the Gordian knot of Greek mythology applied to the American Revolution and why the lyre of Orpheus, also from Greek mythology, was pertinent to the symbols on the American flag. And the common man could recite by memory lengthy quotes from English poets such as Pope, Dryden, and Milton. You know, we think about these people back then. They didn't have the electronics and the gadgets we have today, so we think they were backwards. <laughs> oh, how silly. He then goes on to say, in contrast, 
Contemporary studies reveal that only 6% of Americans today can name the freedom secured for, uh, through our First Amendment. Graduating seniors can identify an average of only seven states on a blank map of the United States. And not one of the top 50 elite colleges and universities in America require a single course in American history for graduation. For this reason, historical annotations have been inserted at the bottom of the pages to explain names, events, or issues largely unknown to Americans today. I don't know if you understand this, but that is a biting indictment to the people of today because <clears throat> we have been so dumbed down. And education has been reduced to the ridiculous. These people back then knew what they were talking about and they could quote at length. Yes, Doc? Um, yes, there's... I don't know if you heard that, but uh, Dot was saying that uh, David Barton was influential in getting the curriculum for the textbooks in the schools to reflect more of uh, what our history is all about. Uh, there's always a battle going on there, and a lot of it has to uh, usually centers on uh, evolution as opposed to creation. Uh, intelligent design, they call it these days. We're fortunate here because we have many who homeschool. And the homeschoolers really shine when it comes to history and math and politics, anything else. Uh, so, anyhow, I thought that would be interesting to you. What I did was take the, the first, or, uh, I guess it was a speech, it was an oration by David Ramsey. It was on the occasion of eight years after the victory of uh, our republic. And it was 1794 on the 4th of July. And he is explaining about how thankful he, he was for how things had turned out and the victories that we won. He's just kind of explaining what things were like in the United States at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Especially compared to the rest of the world. And I highlighted those things, and I'm, I'm thinking about maybe uh, just taking some of the cream out of it and reading to you what he is thankful for and what the situation was in 1794, eight years after the victory was won on the 4th of July. It is very revealing. So I don't know if I'll do that, but I've thought about it. I was thinking, I wish I'd have had that before this past 4th of July uh, because I could have maybe incorporated some of that into it. Anyhow, let's uh, open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4.
First Thessalonians chapter four. <clears throat> Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed. I think uninformed is kind of a euphemistic word there. I think what really was more apropos would be ignorant. Some translations have that. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. I'm not going to go any further than that because I don't know how far we'll get, but we have enough to deal with up to that point. Y'all will remember that we, I was dealing with this issue of soul sleep this is on the notes that we went over last time. A soul and a spirit cannot lay down or stand up. The soul and spirit of a believer leaves his body at physical death and goes to be with the Lord. And you might be able to find that in your notes or you can just look at it up here. Now, I have some scriptures to substantiate that. Ecclesiastes 12:7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's what happens upon physical death. In reality, for the believer, life goes on after death. It's just in a different place, and you leave your temporary tent behind. <clears throat> it's even true for the unbeliever. The unbeliever, when they die, they don't have a spirit, but they have a soul, and their soul goes to another place. The place is torments. It appears to be in the belly of the earth somewhere. And they are awaiting judgment, the great white throne. Galatians, uh, excuse me, Genesis 35:18. And it came about as her, referring to Rachel's soul, was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. I believe that uh, the, for she died, does anybody open to that scripture? I believe that that for she died, in parentheses, is in the scripture. It's not something that I put in there. Genesis 35:18. Somebody look that up for me. It's in parentheses, right? Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I don't want you to think when you're reading this. I did add Rachel's name in there so you know who it was talking about in brackets, but I should have put parentheses around this because that is in the scripture. It says. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. These are examples of what happens at physical death because there are those who allege that when you die, you either cease to exist or else you cease to exist until the resurrection. In other words, there's no consciousness on your part. It's like going to sleep and you don't wake up until the resurrection, others believe that when you die, it's like going to sleep and never waking up. But the Bible does not substantiate either one of those two views. The view that it substantiates is just what we began with. The soul or spirit of a believer leaves his body at physical death and goes to be with the Lord. 
Then we went to 1 Samuel 28, 13 through 15. Uh, this is where Saul went to the witch of Endor, and he's inquiring about uh, bringing up Samuel from the dead. And indeed, this is probably the only incident ever where there really was someone that came up from the dead. The rest of this, this necromancy and these seances and all that is a bunch of uh, trickery with regards to the occult. It's uh, someone can came. It can appear that someone comes up. They can even sound like the one that was uh, that had died. But these are ventriloquist demons that are able to do this. Anyway, and the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is the form? And, he, and she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now, the reason I have this here is because if, indeed, when a person dies, they cease to exist, there's no more consciousness or anything what is Saul doing being raised up from the dead and having a conversation with Saul it goes on in first Samuel uh, some other physical aspects that were going on with regards to Samuel who had already died first Kings 17:21. this is when Elijah stretched himself over a child three times and called out to the Lord and said "O Lord my God I pray thee let this child's life that would be nephish being life, soul, person, or mind returned to him. That's what happened. The child died and his soul had left. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, we've already covered that. Matthew 17, 2 and 3. This is the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus Christ gave his disciples a preview of what he would look like in his resurrection body. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, that was those who were looking on, talking with him, talking with Jesus. So Elijah and Moses, even though they had died, appeared on planet Earth talking. And it appears that that's going to happen again. We can't say it with absolute dogmatism, but the two witnesses of uh, Revelation um, appears to be Moses and Elijah, one of them calls down fire from heaven and the other one uh, turns the water to blood, which were indicative of Elijah and Moses, but we're not sure that that is who they are. But if, if it is, it would demonstrate again, as it did here at the Mount Transfiguration, that indeed they did not cease to exist. They did not just disappear, no consciousness. Luke 16 is Lazarus and the rich man. That's Luke 16, 19, 31. 19 through 31, and you can read that at your leisure. All that is not a parable. It's an, a, an account of those of what happens after death, at least for the Old Testament believers. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud, loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did you notice that? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Because that was what was going to take place. Second Corinthians five eight, we are good. We are good courage. I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That that's why we don't fear death, because we recognize it's just a 
transfer from one environment, one location to another. Philippians 1, 20, uh, 22 through 24. But This is Paul speaking. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to, to what? Depart and be with the Lord, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is much more necessary for your sake. This always kind of puzzled me to a degree because here Paul is saying, I've got to make a decision which is best. There's only one problem with this. Is it's not his decision. <laughs> I think he was just thinking out loud. He was thinking, you know, uh, it's better to go and be with the Lord, and yet they, they need me here. So Then we have our current verse. First that, well, not our, it's going to be our current verse in just a minute. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, we'll get to that then. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, we have martyred believers during the tribulation. It says, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Isn't that interesting? We can't see souls right now. But this is referring to someone who saw the souls of those who were martyred for Christ's sake, and they were under the altar slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So you have them talking, people see them. These are some of the scriptures that demonstrate that there's no such thing as soul sleep, meaning that when you die, your soul just kind of vanishes. This is, for instance, the Jehovah Witnesses believe this. They believe that there is a resurrection, but when you die, you cease to exist, and then at the resurrection, you're kind of uh, regenerated again. But that, the, the Scriptures cer certainly don't uh, reflect that. And we're going to go to a few Scriptures that they would counter the idea of someone lives on after death. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. <clears throat> Ezekiel is right before Daniel, so you should be able to find it easily. Ezekiel 18. You know, <clears throat> if you've never been challenged with these things, with, the, with, with verses like this, you're not so prone to think much of them. But when someone has confronted you with this and tried to have you believe a false doctrine, then you appreciate the correct understanding of them. So in Ecclesiastes, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Now, I'm, I'm reading the New American Standard Version, okay? And this is what it says. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness upon, of, of the wicked will be upon himself. So what we have here is explaining the whole idea is God is not going to punish 
the sons for the father's sins. However, if I was reading that probably in a King James Version, anybody have a King James Version here? Do you have it, Art? Okay. I believe the King James Version says, and here's where the controversy is, it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yeah, well, just, just that first part. What does it say? Go ahead. Verse 18. Okay, that's good. That's all I wanted. Yeah. The King James Version says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And when you're talking to someone, I've done this with Jehovah Witnesses before and had some lengthy conversations because I said the soul does not die, that it just lives on in different places. And they say, oh, no, the Bible says just the opposite. They go to their King James Version and say, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, the soul here in Nephish can mean... Uh, what I said a while ago, it can mean the person, it can mean the soul, it can be the mind. The, and, and in this case, it's talking about the person, the person who sins. The person who sins will die. He's going to be held responsible. The son will not bear the punishment of the father. The whole issue here is who is culpable or responsible for their sins. The Bible is saying God does not hold the Son responsible for the Father's sin. But because the King James Version takes the, that word nephish and, and makes it soul and says the soul that sinneth that shall die, that is their argument to say, no, the soul doesn't die. But they would be hard-pressed to go to all these other scriptures that I've given you and try to make a case that really they died, the soul died, there's no more consciousness, they cease to exist at that point. So I thought I would go to that so you can, that you can note that. That's one of the places that they would go and try to uh, make an argument that the soul dies, but in context, it's talking about the person. Now, sometimes nephesh can be translated soul, but some, many times it can even be uh, translated uh, breath or mind or person. Yes, Art? Right. Yeah, I have that. I have that noted here also. It says, "Behold, you can turn to verse four. And if you want to make a note, I'll explain verse four for you. Verse four says, "Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins will die." Okay? Now, even in the New American Standard Version, it says souls here and not person. This is, the, the word soul here is used for the whole person, and it's a figure of speech called a syndectiki. Yes, I'll spell it for you if you want to spell it. If you want to write it down, it's S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Yeah, S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. And it's when uh, a part of something is mentioned and it's referring to the whole, to the whole person. So this is talking about the whole person here. So you have it... Also in verse 
20. I have a note here also that says, see Jeremiah 31.30. So I guess I better go to Jeremiah 31.30 to see what that says. Jeremiah 31.30. See why it's nice to write in your Bible? You go to something later on, you can go back and check it out. Here it is right here, Jeremiah 31:30. For everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So that's the whole context of what is being given in Ezekiel chapter 18. The soul is a, is a figure of speech here. A synecdoche, that's hard to say. And it's talking about for the whole person. There's two other uh, scriptures. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3.18. I think I've shown you this once before. You probably already have it marked in your Bible. This was a real... Real hard thing for me. I had, uh, when I was listening to Herbert W. Armstrong, the Worldwide Church of God, and they would go with these verses because they also thought that when you died that your soul ceased to exist until the resurrection. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18, it says, I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. This is Ecclesiastes 3.18. Beasts. This is like what? Animals, right? For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beast is the same. As one dies, so die, dies the other. Indeed, they, have, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Now, folks, that's the Bible I'm reading. Okay? Now turn to Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Verse 4. Ecclesiastes 9, 4. For whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. You see that? I underlined that part, but the dead do not know anything. That means they have no consciousness. That means they have ceased to exist. And they no longer have a reward. Verse 6. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. I'm here to tell you, those are lies, 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 lies. It ain't true. But it's in the Bible. 
But who wrote it? Solomon wrote it. And this whole thing is about vanity of vanities. This is what Solomon's thinking was like when he was out of fellowship. This is Solomon thinking human viewpoint. Many things in, 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 the, uh, in Ecclesiastes. He was trying, he was going through all the different things to make himself happy. And these are examples of human viewpoint which stinketh and it is not true. So you have to be careful when you read something in the Bible and somebody points to this to try to make a case that when you die, you cease to exist. There's no more consciousness and so forth. You can say, okay, who wrote it? And why did he wrote it? What was the condition? Because you understand that it, what this is saying just directly contradicts the things that we have just seen in these other verses. So this is, it. This is Solomon. The son of David, at one point, he was the wisest man on earth. But he got into reversionism. He, he started getting involved with foreign women, which was against the Mosaic law. God told him not to do it, and they turned his mind off of God and on to... There was even idolatry under Solomon. And so he got into a mood, let's say, and this is what his thinking was during that. Do you understand now? I'm giving you the counters to the fact that when you die, your soul and spirit as a believer goes to be with the Lord. You are different than a dog. There is the idea that you, when, when this said there's no longer a reward, well, we know there's going to be a reward. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. It says the dead do not know anything. Well, if that's the case, how did Samuel come up and talk to Saul? How did Elijah and Moses, what were they doing talking to Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration if the dead know, do not know anything and they no longer have a reward, their memory's forgotten, and so forth? All this is just human viewpoint, and it stinketh. Now, those are all the counters to what we've had there. Okay, but it's pertinent now? Okay, just a second. Let me check something here. I've lost something. I've got to get it back here. Hold your thought just one second. Okay. Okay, what's your question? Okay. Wait, 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 just wait, just a second. Yeah. We need to get it to where they can hear it. When a person is born, they receive their soul from God breathing. They get their spirit when they become a believer. Mm -hmm. When they die, the soul and the spirit go to heaven. Mm -hmm. That soul and spirit have been enmeshed in the one body, which is now dead. Do the soul and spirit become meshed as one? When they go to heaven? Okay. Um, 
That's a good question, and I can I can't all I can do is there's there's no uh, verse that I can have you go to that I'm aware of that would distinguish between the two, but I think that they they always remain separate and distinct. You know, we have uh, uh, for the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any other than the uh, any two-edged sword, piercing even dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. Um, there's different functions. The soul is our mentality, it's our consciousness, you know, it's what we're able to process information with. And then the dominant portion of our soul is the cardia. And the cardia is where we have our norms and standards, it's where our memory center is, our long-term memory. All these things have to do with the person itself, or him or herself, maybe I should say. But the spirit is altogether different. The spirit is, is really harder to describe. It's, our spirit is what gives us the ability to have a relationship with God. And those that, that are unbelievers, for instance, don't have a spirit. They have no relationship with God. And I, I can break down, in fact, re recently with the young people's class, I, had, I put the, the soul up here on the board. I have a, a, a PowerPoint on it. And I was showing the difference between the noose, the left lobe, and the cardia, the right lobe, and how they all interact. And the, the left side, the noose, is just is just a information processor. It comes into our, our soul, and sometimes this noose is called the mind. And uh, we process the information, but it, it's, it's a temporary thing. The, the information that goes into the noose, which is the left lobe of the soul or of the brain anyway, is what processes it. And if it's, if it's not important to us, it just, it just goes out the window. We, we don't retain anything. Um, if we don't believe something, it's not important, we, it just goes. Only if it's important to us and we believe it is it transferred over into our right lobe, which is the cardia. That's the dominant portion. And it's, it's filed away, that information is filed away in our brain, and then whenever something stimulates a certain area, the, our, our brain is able to take that information that's coded and brings it up into our consciousness, and it goes into long-term memory. And that, all, those, all those things are aspects of the soul. But, but with the spirit, it's, it's, it's harder to describe because... It's, it's, the, it's what God gives us as the ability to have a relationship with Him. And when you, it, what makes it even more complicated is that we can't think without a brain. But the brain is not the one that does the thinking. It's the soul. It's that immaterial part of us that does the thinking. And yet you can't think without a brain. And how that intermeshes and how all that goes on... I don't even think neurosurgeons or anybody else knows. I think it's just a mystery to them. And yet God has created us in such a wonderful fashion that this happens. With the, with the Spirit, uh, the Spirit is there just like the soul is there. But it, it, in, in my way of thinking, what, the way I, best way I can explain it to you, is it is pertinent more towards just our relationship with God. Now... I, it's also understood. I understand that you have doctrine in your soul, but you wouldn't have doctrine in your soul if you didn't have a spirit. 
That's why when we... Y'all remember Operation Z, I could throw it on the board. When, the, when you're hearing doctrine being taught, spiritual phenomenon, and it goes from the pastor teaching it over into the Spirit. That's the first place it goes to. And the Spirit, and it becomes pneumatikos, which is spiritual information. So the Spirit has something to do with it. Without the human spirit, you couldn't even understand it. But then it goes down into the noose. That's the left lobe of your brain, which has, has that interaction with the soul. And then, it, then you have to process it. You un, it it's that mentality that's in that, that uh, soul, the, the, at least the mind, the, the noose, that makes it understandable. And then the process is what I explained a while ago. But still, the, 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 the soul is an integral part of it. But I guess what I, the, the easiest way to say, I don't think they ever merge and become the, the same. You know, that it, both we have a soul and a spirit in our body. Have you ever thought about this? It, our body, our human body, and all I'm seeing is the outside shell of all of us. Nobody except God can see inside and know what's really there. But just think of our bodies right now. First of all, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Also, we're indwelt by God the Father. We're indwelt by Jesus Christ. We also have a body and we have a soul and a spirit. All these things. And we have a brain and all this has to intermesh and go... Uh, it uses our body. Now, but it doesn't have to have a body. Because when we die, the body is gone. But all these functions are able to continue to go on even when there's not a brain, where there's not even a body. Now, that blows my mind. <laughs> I mean, you, we know we have to have a brain right now in order to process all this. But God has made us in such a way, even unbelievers... When their soul continues to function, even when they don't have a brain, they don't have a body, that's no problem. You still have consciousness. Go to Luke chapter 16 and watch what's going on there. When Lazarus and the rich man died, they left their brain behind. They left their body behind, but there's still conversations going on. They're still making judgments. They're still making deliberations and, and conversing with one another. Now, how does that happen? So many times when we, when we really dig deep and we look into these things, we come up with more questions than we even had answers. But it shows how fearfully and wonderfully we're made, not only with our bodies, but also with a soul and a spirit and all the other things. And here, here if there, were, there could be an unbeliever in our midst. Now, there isn't one, but if there was one, we couldn't tell, him any tell any difference from anybody else. How would you know that he has a soul or uh, whether he has a spirit or not? And what's so confusing to us, there are a lot of people by their behavior look like they have a human spirit. They talk the talk. They can even walk the walk. But they are pseudo. They're, they're believing in works. And then you have other people who looks like the last thing they would have is anything spiritual, much less a human spirit. And they're the ones that have the human spirit and they're acting like an unbeliever. And you, and you wonder, how do we get through it? How do we get by in this world trying to make distinctions and, and try to... The, this just deception. You add all the deception that's thrown out there on top of that, the false doctrines. And then you begin to understand why it's so absolutely imperative that we stay in the Word and we're thinking doctrine. 
Because the, the biggest pitfalls is the deceptions and the traps and us trying to make sense out of things. And, well, that sounds good. I think I'll grab that one. That's what people do. You talk to people on the street that have no spiritual dynamics in their souls. They have no doctrine. And ask them about things that are important. What do you think happens after you die? And they might go on a 30-minute a, a platform and give you all these details about stuff. And none of it is biblical. And you say... Where did that come from? Do, 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 do. I mean, just out of, you don't know where it comes from. But they are very dogmatic about it. And even if you question them about it, they get offended. So that's why it's so critical we go to the Bible. We don't have all the answers, but at least we know enough to know what's false and what's not. Even when we go to our own scriptures in Ecclesiastes, we go to these verses, we can say, wait a minute. I have enough doctrine to know this can't be so. Because if this is so, then all these other verses over here about the judgment seat of Christ and rewards and these, all these scriptures I gave you here, they can't be true. That's true. That's, that's that category, comparing doctrine with doctrine. That's how you can come up with the right answer as, to, as far as what is true. I, I know that in our bodies, the, the, the soul and the spirit is distinct. I, and to just shorten this i could have probably shortened it a lot more but uh i don't see anything in the scriptures that would say that when we die that those two somehow merge that they stay distinct oh well, oh well <laughs> yeah they they're the, yes i, I mean that, that's who we are we are our soul and spirit and there might be an interim body well i, well, I think there is an interim body and the soul and spirit will be together, but I thought you meant kind of coalesce somehow. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, she's talking about uh, when when Jesus Christ died, the Scripture says that uh, the spirit went to be with the Lord and the soul went into Tartarus. And I, I can understand that about as much as I can understand not being any time. I mean, how... Uh, you, and you're talking about staying together? <laughs> well, it's... Uh, but you know what? When, when people ask questions like that, and I fumble and bumble around the best I can to answer it, it really opens up their minds to other things. It's talking about things like this that we might not even have the answers to, but it gets us to think. I wish you could have seen your faces as I was explaining all this. Everybody was sitting on the edge of their seats like this, leaning forward, really concentrating. Because there's nothing more important than things like this to talk about, as far as I'm concerned. These, these are the things that are so interesting, and, and it, it's, it's refreshing to me, and I think it's refreshing to anybody who's positive towards doctrine, to talk about things that are really important. And to, we can only go so far because God has only given us so much information, but He did give us brains, He did give us a soul, He did give us mentality, and we have the Scriptures so we can compare. That's what we're to do. We're to meditate on these Scriptures, not just say, Oh, I know four verses, and I know John 3.16, and I'm ready. No, we have to think about these, verse, these scriptures so we can put it together. And when we do that, 
It eliminates the darkness and the blindness and the fear. And that's what these things do. Uh, to me, I don't know why, this is just... I've never been afraid to die with regards to going to hell. Never. Ever, well, ever since I've been a believer. That, I don't have the slightest bit of anxiety or the last thing in my mind that I'm ever going to go to hell. I, I could say dogmatically, positively, that I'm not going to hell because of the Scriptures, because of the Bible. But what, what has concerned me from time to time is when you die, you cease to exist. And I don't know why that, why should that, why should that really be such a scary thing to a person? Because if you, when you die, you cease to exist, you won't know it. I mean, no more problem. You're, you're just gone. Maybe it's vanity, you reckon? Maybe it's just that I'm so vain that I can't bear the thought that when I'm dead, that's it. No more Michael John. But, you know, that really leads right into where we're going in 1 Thessalonians 4 here because we're having a, the, the next scripture we have is that we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. And what we're talking about are things that happen. We're discussing what happens after death. And you might notice there are very few people that want to go there. And the reason they don't want to go there is because they don't want to think about it. It's scary to them because it's, it's, it's like taking a leap out into the utter darkness. And they, they don't know. They want to know. But no one can tell them. I'm, I'm stealing my thunder of the notes that I was, I was going to have to, to go over. But I might as well just go with this tirade I've been on for a while. Um, all the scientists in the world, all the sophisticated technology that we have today, we're no closer for someone to showing us scientifically what happens after a person dies than they were back in the dark ages. And that's because it's by design. God has designed it so. He has us rely on his revelation he tells us what happens it's just a matter of believing it or not in god's whole plan have you ever thought about how important it is the about belief what you believe have you ever that god has designed it where everything in your lifetime while we're here experiencing this this short time on earth as well as for all eternity is going to depend on what you believe People act today like, well, you have your belief, you have yours, I have mine. Well, who cares? You know, you can believe anything you want to. And the Bible is just the opposite. God's design is just the opposite. He has revealed it. And so we have no fear of death if, in fact, this is a verse, I'm, I'm just teaching that ahead of time, but I'm just paraphrasing, but that's okay. If we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave, that he was victorious over death, why should we be afraid to die? Because he's already conquered death. There's no... First Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, the, the sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you believe that, then you have that hope. You have that confidence that when you die... That you're, it's not going to be something that's awful. It's, in fact, it's going to be absolutely wonderful if you believe that. But those who don't believe that, 
They grieve in a different way than people who grieve that have that hope. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 14 that we're about to get into, that's what it's all about. I don't know how many... I've done dozens and dozens. I've done way more funerals than I would ever want to do. I would never would want to do any of them, but I've done a lot of them. And do you know that in... I can't think of a one where I saw people grieve as if they had no hope. I have seen on TV and I have heard of funerals where there is wailing and there is out-of-control grief. And that comes from people who have no hope. That comes from people who think that when you die, that's it, it's over. You'll never see them again. They cease to exist. They're no more than that dust. Their body, that's what they were. Now their body's going to the ground and they're over. And I would grieve that same way also, even to the ones that I love so much, if I thought that's what happened. I can, I can understand why people would do that. But they don't have any hope. And if they don't have any hope, isn't God's fault. He's revealed it. Maybe they've even been taught it, but they don't believe it. It's all, so, what's so important in our whole lives is what we believe. What we believe matters. And that's why we, and, and there's so much deception out there. Tell your, tell your children, tell your friends, tell everybody. There is so much deception out there today. If you don't have doctrine in your soul, you will be gobbled up and become a casualty in the angelic conflict faster than you can blink. No one is strong enough to resist all the temptations and to fall for all the tricks and landmines and traps out there that the devil has for us. Plus, even for people who, who read the Bible, if they're not humble and really seeking God, if they have an agenda, if they're just carrying on what their parents believed and this type of thing, then it's not God's fault that they do not have this hope. I don't know how many Jehovah Witnesses there are. They'll probably be knocking on your door before long. And you need to recognize these people do not have this hope. They think that when you die, you cease to exist. And they don't believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they think that you have to work in order to be saved. And they are not saved. And they're going to continue to live after they take their last breath. They're going to be very conscious when they wind up being in torments, waiting for the great white throne to be judged and be put into hell for all eternity. That's what they're headed for. And Christians who run and hide on the bed because they don't have enough knowledge of the Bible to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them and give them the truth ought to be ashamed. And they will be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ because life continues after death. Very much so. So, I'm out of time. <laughs> Uh, this had this needed to be said. Uh, I, I don't I don't apologize for getting off on rants like that, because if it triggers thought in your mind and you start thinking about these things, it's okay to think about what happens after you die. Not only is it okay, the Lord intends for us to do so. That's what a personal sense of eternal destiny is all about. But we don't have to dread it. We ought to be looking forward to it. I'm convinced the older you get, if you have any sense, the better death looks. 
Not, not death necessarily, but being with the Lord. I mean, nobody in their right mind is going to embrace death. But this, we sang tonight, this world is not my home. That's what we have to remember. We're just here temporarily, very temporarily. And what's going to, have, what's going to happen afterwards? And just these few people here goes away with the knowledge that the soul does not die. Neither does the spirit. We live on. It's in a different place. Just that message alone, going out there and being dogmatic about it and being able to back it up with Scripture is enough to get people thinking because people don't want to think about that. They don't know anything about it. They're afraid of it. They just try to pretend like it's all going to be okay. I've even heard people say, I've had, I used to work in construction. I was in sports around a bunch of jocks and a bunch of, um, what do they call them, uh, the guy that's... Uh, Rednecks, yeah, but what? Uh, Rambos. That's where I was looking for. A bunch of Rambos, oh, they were tough. And they'd be out and somebody, they'd be doing, they'd be fornicating or getting drunk or something. And then some legalistic prude goes to some church and say, you better not do that. You're going to wind up in hell. They say, that's okay. I'll just party in hell. Can you imagine? That audacious to say something like that. Talking about arrogance and ignorance being joined. It's great to recognize that when we leave this veil of tears, not only are we going to see our loved ones, and no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, the old things passed away, we're going to see Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Well, we're done, so we'll pick up this. Uh, by the way, the next verse, uh, verse 14, we start getting into it. This is, this is marvelous. I've been waiting for this. I can't wait to teach this because it's... it's the event, not only of the century, not only of the millennium, it's the event, period. The rapture. <clears throat> Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for <clears throat> your plan, that you are mindful of us, you love us, you treat us in grace and mercy always, you reveal these great truths to us, you've given us the grace system of perception to understand these things. We pray that you will help us to embrace them, not to run away from them, but to do our best to understand them, to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture so that we can impart truth to those who are confused. Not that we try to lord it over anyone. So we thank you that we have everything to look forward to and not much time left in order to glorify you and to tell others how great you are. We pray that you will motivate us to do these things, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.